I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 54 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Brian Vecchi. Brian is a technical evangelist at Veronis, where he supports a wide range of security initiatives by helping Veronis' customers and employees get the most out of the company's products. In his 20-year technical career, Brian served as a developer, tech architect, engineer, and product manager for companies in financial services, legal, and cybersecurity. Brian joined Veronis in 2010 as a director of education and development. Before Veronis, Brian worked on systems architecture at UBS. He holds his CISSP certification and frequently presents on topics related to security and technology. He has been quoted in news sources ranging from the Financial Times to Dark Reading and has made multiple appearances on CNBC. In this episode, we discuss his start on Helpdesk and his move to developer, his current role as evangelist, using the word cyber, information governance and the value of data, GDPR, the future of data privacy, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right. Well, Brian, thanks for joining me in Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm doing well, Doug. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, great. And then you're in my, my old hometown of, of New York area, I, I take it. I, I am. I, I, w- I lived, lived in New York City for about 17 years, but my wife and I recently moved out to central New Jersey. So I'm out in rural New Jersey now. I'm actually closer to Pennsylvania than I am to New York, which sounds weird to say out loud. Ooh, where, so where do your sports allegiance lie then? I'm hoping it's still Giants and Yankees. I mean, we didn't, we didn't lose Neither. I, I grew up in Seattle, Washington, and my, my sports allegiances have never changed. I am a um, long-suffering Seattle Mariners fan and a, a recently excited but still brokenhearted from time to time Seattle Seahawks fan and a very brokenhearted yeah. Sonics fan. Oh, well, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, if it was 1991, 92, you'd be great as, as a Sonics uh, fan, but it's been a while. Or even, even 96. I went to a couple of those Western Conference Finals games in 96 when they won. I mean, they won. They had such a great year. They won 68 games or something. They ran into a buzzsaw, one of, the, one of those Jordan teams that was just, just ridiculous. To, yes. Yeah. It, so how did you end up, I guess, kind of where you are? I mean, now you're in New York working for Veronis. Where did you kind of start? What was your path? How did you get out to where you are now? That's that's a really interesting question. So I started, I grew up in Seattle and I was um, I was always into technology and computers. I was always a computer geek. Um, and I went to college in upstate New York. Uh, I went to Colgate uh, upstate and so that brought me out east. And both my parents grew up in New York City. So I always had a lot of family out here. Uh, not a lot of friends before I went to college, but I, w- I would come out and I knew, I wouldn't say I knew the city, but I knew the area relatively well. And I had, I had kind of a support system here. So after college, I ended up moving down to New York City. It's kind of like I was in develop, I was a, a web developer, uh, kind of a computer guy. And this is the late 90s, 99, early 2000. And I could, at that time, this is before the bubble burst. Like if you had a development background at all, you could kind of throw a dart and go anywhere you wanted. So I was looking at, you know, Silicon Valley. Do I go back to Seattle? Do I go to Austin, Texas, which had a really kind of burgeoning tech scene at the time and still does. But because I had a lot of friends from, from New York, because I had gone to college out here and because I had a lot of family here, I said, you know what, I'll give New York City a try. And that was in 2001. 
and I just kind of never left. So I came down to New York to work as a, a web developer for a publishing company. I had also interned at a, another publishing company as an IT guy. My first job in, in tech was in 1997. I interned at uh, CMP Media, which published uh, Information Week, which is now dark reading. So they're still around as UBM Media. But my first job was on their help desk. So I kind of I ended up in New York and, and just, just kind of never left. I hopped job to job, started a developer. I ended up becoming, realizing that I was better at the it kind of, this is going to sound, this is, is kind of rough for a technology guy, but I was better at talking about what I was doing and helping other people get excited and understand what I was doing and why than the nuts and bolts of developing. Um, I was never a very organized developer, so I, I became a project manager and an architect, worked for a law firm, then got a job for uh, UBS Financial Services, the big Swiss bank, uh, and took a job in, God, I want to say 2006. Um, which and it gave me one of the worst commutes ever, which I was living in Brooklyn and I had to commute to Weehawken, New Jersey, which it, you probably know because you're from the area, but I'm not sure everybody knows the geography of the greater New York City area. That, mean, that meant every morning I had to get up, get in a car, drive through three counties, two states and under or over two rivers just to get to work and then returned the following day. Um, so that's pretty brutal. I, I'd say when I was living in Brooklyn, they kind of, you know, Google mapped me and they're like, Hey, well, you know, if, if you just got to go to Morristown, New Jersey, it's only showing some a couple miles. I was like, <laughs> I don't think you understand yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. It's, you know, it was a great job and I was grateful for the opportunity and I really enjoyed it. But my boss who hired me, um, woman by the name of Marguerite Cook, she said, you know, when I was interviewing, she's like, Oh, it's fine. Like there's a ferry. It's, it's no problem. A lot of people come from the city. And I was like, sure. And then I tried it for a week and I was like, well, this is awful. So I stayed there for about three, three and a half years. And then the financial crisis hit and all of the banks got hit. And I, I survived, I don't know, seven, eight rounds of layoffs. And eventually it was kind of like last in, first out. And so I didn't, I, I got riffed out. And uh, it was a bad time to be unemployed in New York City, especially in tech, because nobody had any budget for tech. But I got an email from a former boss of mine. I, I had worked as a project manager and an applications analyst at a law firm. And I had a great boss there. His name was uh, Ennio Rizzi. And he said, he didn't have a job for me because he didn't have any budget. But he had a friend, a guy named, uh, guy named Tom Shecker, who, uh, who knew of a guy who was looking for somebody who was pretty technical, who had kind of a technical background, but who could also kind of communicate and speak and um, who could, do, could wear a lot of different hats because he was starting this kind of technical marketing group inside a, a company nobody ever heard of. So he, uh, I, I, he, I got an email introduction to a guy named David Gibson, who's now the CMO, the chief marketing officer of Veronis. And I still have the email thread. It's like I got an email on March 2nd or 3rd, and my first day at Veronis was on March 10th, I think, or 15th, whatever the middle of the month was. So it happened really quickly, and it's been kind of a whirlwind since. That was more than eight years ago, and now at Veronis, I'm a technical evangelist, which means I get to do all kinds of different things. I get to speak to our customers. I get to go on TV. I get to do fun podcasts like this. I get to train our sales force. I get to do, uh, you know, executive and partner dinners. I get to create a lot of content. Um, and I get to, uh, I get to spend a lot of time with our engineering and product management folks to figure out what we're doing and, and why and, and why, how we're building it and, uh, help communicate that to the rest of the world. It's a ton of fun. It sounds like it. It sounds like you also have to talk to a lot of different audiences, sometimes within seconds or minutes of each other. Do you find yourself having <laughs> to kind of be a translator of technical to non-technical, which I know is such a cliche to say, but it literally sounds like what you have to do a majority of the time. 
Yeah, I have to. I have to kind of take off my um, my engineering hat. I get. Brought, I'll, I'll be brought on a, a, a customer call where my job is to be a a liaison to our product managers um, and, and talk about kind of the ar- the underlying architecture of the software and why it makes sense for them and how and why we can scale and what major use cases are. And then I have to switch gears and train our sales force and help them understand you know, why and how our customers, what the problems our customers have and why and how our customers use our products and why they need to, you know, why they need to be talking about different kinds of use cases and how they talk about our our platform differently, depending on if they're talking to a storage and infrastructure guy or whether they're talking to a CISO. Uh, and then I've got to, you know, flip around and speak to our either executives or our product managers or developers and help them understand what, you know, what our marketing and sales teams are seeing and the problems they're facing and what our customers are talking about. And I, I get to be kind of a hub of a lot of different kinds of conversations and, and really, as you say, be a translator between lots of different people. It means I'm not really an expert necessarily in everything that I do, but I get to, uh, I get to be kind of a mile wide and hopefully a little bit more than an inch deep. For sure. And, you know, and look, I'm, I'm, as guilty as anybody for for overusing the word cyber as much as I can, how I got a <laughs> podcast called that. But you know, when when you hear that term, I mean, it's kind of morphed into a variety of different things over the past you know decade or so. You know, so when you hear that term or use that term, you know, cybersecurity, how, what's the I guess the commonality against all those audiences that you find that you try to use or at least hear or relate to? That's a really interesting question, and I'm not sure I know how to answer because I kind of askew using the word cyber. Uh, or the word cybersecurity, because because it it has so it means so many different things that it almost has so little meaning at this point. Cyber is often I, I find a, a word that's so all encompassing. It's such a it's such a big umbrella. I might use it if I'm talking to to press, uh, for instance, where we're talking generally about the issues that companies are facing. They've got too much data. It's growing too fast. They don't know who's got access to what. Uh, data is too exposed, and and what does that mean for I don't know for the world. But when I'm you know when I'm talking to uh, to you know a, a specific customer, it's we'll be having a we'll be having a conversation in the context of their cybersecurity program, and it's my job often to help them understand what to give them a little bit of a, li- a little bit more context about why cyber means so many different things. And I'm not really sure I actually answered your question there. Um, but it, I hopefully it gave you, it gives you an idea of kind of how I, at least how I think about having some of those conversations. Does any of that make any sense? I think so. And, that, and that's what I try to do too. I think to the best that I can too, is, is when that term comes up is to then try to understand where the sayer of it, or if I'm having to deliver it in some, some capacity, you know, who, who the intended audience is and what it comes down and what it's going to mean to them. Ultimately, I, you know, it keeps coming down to the unsexy term of risk management. You know, I don't mm-hmm. think a lot of people want to say, hey, information and security risk management. It just, if I did the information security and risk management interviews podcast, I probably would not have the listenership as I have because that, it just that doesn't sound very, as sexy, you know? Yeah, it'd be a very long URL. Yeah, it's very tough. I know you, you hit on it. And one of the things that I bring up a lot, depending on no matter who I'm talking to, is kind of the definition of risk. Because I, I find... Risk is another one of those words, especially when, when you get past kind of the broad umbrella of cyber, everybody wants to talk about risk. But it, when you turn that around and ask somebody really specifically, like, what do you mean by risk? Um, it, I, I, sometimes, in my experience, not everybody has a good good answer to that. They, they kind of think it's just, okay, it's it's bad things. It's kind of preventing bad things from happening. And I have a really personally a kind of a really specific de- definition of risk because Baronis is an information security company. So we deal with helping companies manage, protect, 
secure uh, and you know monitor and respond to threats to their data really specifically. And risk is a function, I think, and I believe that uh, of how valuable is an asset that you have and, and what's the likelihood of something going wrong with it. And when we're talking about cybersecurity or you know the the risk management, uh, it what we're really talking about is understanding the value of what we got, um, and in some cases trying to increase that value. Uh, and then mitigating or preventing bad things from happening, or at least understanding what's the likelihood of something bad happening. And and I'll break that down a, a, a level further. Veronis, we deal with the security primarily of file systems and other data stores. So the value of, or, or the, the security of spreadsheets and PowerPoints and, and Word documents, because it's what it's the kind of data that companies have the most of and they know the least about. It's It tends to be a, like a dramatically insecure uh, set of data for most companies. And when we talk about risk, it's all right, is this someone's vacation photos that they've saved to their personal drive? Or is this kind of a compensation spreadsheet or a list of patient records or a list of social security numbers or like GDPR related data? And then who's got access to this stuff? Is it, is it locked down on your laptop and only you can access it? Or is it in an open share or a SharePoint site that everybody in the world could access it if they had the right link? And that's how we kind of define risk. And when I'm talking about cybersecurity issues, Part of my job is to help the people I'm talking to kind of understand what do we mean by risk and then and then get it down the line. How do we how do we better understand it and and mitigate it if if any of that makes some sense? Yeah. And I think there's there's a, a common misconception still that I think is still a lot of times in the media and like we probably do as an industry ourselves. It's like, you know, you gotta keep bad guys out. You know, this is the whole yeah. thing of build up, you know, build the walls and fences. And to me it's still it's goes down to basics of kind of what you touched on. It's what do you have? What's stored on it? Who has access to it? And what are the you know the account credentials around it? That's eighty percent of the breach work that we end up doing is is responding to that types of issues. And then when certainly ask, hey, when you have an account breach, whether it be an Office three sixty five email account or just a traditional RDP, you know, brute force into a server, say, hey, what you know, again, what is the risk? What do, what did this this attacker take? Or did somebody else do something on the internal? It's it's a lot of times like they just don't know. They don't even know what accounts are out there and what the data is. And it's like, see, that's that's more of the problem is this is un, again the unsexy part of asset in, inventory and controls. Yeah, it's the blocking and tackling of security. Uh, it it you, you hit on a lot of different stuff there. It's funny we do we do with Verona's we do risk assessments where we'll we'll install and and take a look at a company's environment. You know how much data they have, how much of that is sensitive, who, what accounts do they have, how are they organized, in which groups, which groups have access to what data, and then we start monitoring and we figure out you know how data is being used and whatnot. And every year we we put it together into a, a risk report that's that's. That's kind of cool because it, it shows in, in really stark metrics just how bad the problem is for so many companies. And 58% of the companies that we did risk assessments for last year, or at least that were part of this report, had more than 100,000 folders. Like these are just file system folders that were open to literally anybody who joined the Wi-Fi network. So that's every account credential. It's like, it's like domain admins had access to this folder, um, which is kind of absurd because how do you do a – and none of this data is ever monitored. So how do you do a forensic you know, investigation of a potentially really, really highly sensitive piece of information when everybody's got access to it and none of it's monitored? It'd be like trying to, I don't know, it's like trying to figure out who stole something out of your garage when everything's been dark and you leave the garage door open all the time and you have no idea who goes in and goes out and everybody knows that it's there. It's just, it, it's kind of the, the I think the biggest issue with cybersecurity is is one of risk, but it's that companies have no idea 
just how much risk they have because they have no much, no idea what they've got, who's got access to it, where it's exposed. And they don't they don't watch anything that's happening. It's it's kind of crazy, but it's why we see breach after breach after breach. It's 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 why you get to have a podcast where you get to talk about security constantly <laughs> because it's I mean there's always something to talk about because these problems are so big. It is. It's also it's interesting too that you know a lot, a lot of these organizations you know, don't relate that cost of record, you know, to, you know, what, what's the real value and cost of that when there is a breach? Um, you know, a lot of the stale data, a lot of things that they have, they hold on to generally has diminishing business value over time, but the risk remains the same, you know, mm-hmm. that stuff gets out there. And, and often, again, the same problem happens when we go into breach situations that the costs skyrocket. It's often we have to look at a lot more data than we should have to, had to have the proper inventory and controls um, around the data to begin with. It's, it's it, a big part of that is we never delete anything, right? It's, I, I ask, um, I get to speak to a lot of both customer and, uh, and kind of industry groups. I'm going to, I'm going to speak down at Gartner, uh, risk management tomorrow, Wednesday, Wednesday, I'm going to be speaking there. And I, one of the questions I always like to ask big audiences is, you know, how many of you guys have a retention and disposition policy? How many of you guys have a policy that certain kinds of data or all kinds of data, depending on what kind it is, need to be deleted after a certain amount of time? And everybody's hand goes up because any, you know, any competent legal department, any competent, uh, you know, risk management department or chief risk officer or CISO is going to have a retention disposition policy because you don't want to keep around data that you don't need anymore. Because it represents both security risk and, you know, operational risk to your company. You you, you may have supposed to del- you, you there's probably data you probably have to delete. But then you ask the same question or, or a different version of that question. How many of you guys apply retention and disposition policies to your file systems, to your Windows servers, to the, those big NAS platforms, to your NetApp clusters, to those big Isilon farms? And every hand goes down and people start smiling. And it's because the same reason, you know, my first job at um, – my first job at that at the CMP help desk, my boss told me something. His name is Joe Tedesco. He, he told me something really funny. He said, you know, Brian, the fastest way to get fired in IT is to delete something because you have no idea, like, who might need it. Like, never delete anything because it's we have no idea what this is. We have no idea. Even if it looks totally innocent, never delete anything. And so we have these really you – know, these really uh, – I was going to say powerful but really – comprehensive retention and disposition policies for data. And then we never apply them, which means that this data just sits around forever because we don't know what we're supposed to delete. And IT, they, they don't want to, they don't want to screw anything up and delete something they're not supposed to. And it's because it's, it's because of the same reasons we've been talking about. Like nothing gets monitored. So you have no idea what's being used and what's not. You have no idea who's got access to it. A lot of it's just open to everybody. Um, you, we haven't even touched on data ownership. You have no idea who this data belongs to, right? Like if you were going to go just start asking questions like, okay, let me, let me find the person in the business that's got the right context that can make a good decision about this. All right. I pull up a folder and it's open to domain users. Well, okay. I have now I have no idea. I start looking at the contents of files and now it usually, it takes six or more hours just to find this for a single folder. Try to do this at scale. It's, it never happens. And so good decisions end up never being made. Which is why files keep being involved in these big breaches. It's why we keep having so many problems with them, I think. So is this a problem that we, we can solve? I mean, I mean, is, it seems a lot of this is the same type of issues we've, we've had for a long time, and the data just gets uh, you know, kind of more long-tailed and stale. Is it something that we can get into people's heads that they, they do need to deal with this as a priority? I think so. Uh, I, I think it, it certainly is a problem that can be solved because I've seen it get solved. And it comes down to, you know, we talk a lot about data being in the dark, uh, you, you need to kind of understand what you have. And I, I don't want to, well, we could, we could get into a, I could get into the details of Verona's tech if you wanted to, but at a high level, whether you're using Verona's to do it or not, you need to know what you have 
but that's only the first step. Uh, you know, data classification or you know, content scanning it has been around for a few years now in various forms. There's DLP, there's eDiscovery, um, but it's only the first step of the problem. And just knowing what you have is is a huge first step. Like knowing what data is sensitive and what's not is really really important. But it's it doesn't actually solve the problem. There's a I like to tell a story. I know a guy who is a CIO of a law firm, and he said, you know, I, he had this big DLP project. He had to find all the sensitive data. And in a law, in a law firm, your sensitive data on file systems is typically client matter data. Which, of, which, which files do we have that apply to a specific client and a specific matter for that client? Um, and he said, okay, so I, I thought I had one big problem. I, I had this big, I, you know, this big file system, big win, bunch of Windows servers, and I didn't know where all my sensitive data was. So we did this big scan and it took months. It's like a six month scan because scanning uh, files takes a long time. Uh, and, he, and he said, yeah, well, at the end of it, I, when I thought I had one problem, I actually ended up with 192,000 problems because now I have the spreadsheet that just says, here's where all your sensitive data is, but there's no context to it. So if you're trying to secure it and lower the risk to it, understanding what's sensitive is one really, really good first step because it, start, it, it, it starts to give you a sense of value. Which data is valuable? Which data is regulated? Where do I have credit card numbers, social security numbers, patient records, stuff like that. GDPR data. We could talk about GDPR all day. <laughs> Right. Where do I have personal data? Where do I have sensitive data? But that is only one half of the equation. The other half is where's that data at risk? So you need to know, uh, secondly, not just where it is, you need to know who's got access to it and where it's exposed. Is this data open to everyone? That stupid everyone group in Windows or you know, domain users or authenticated users if it's on a SharePoint site. Uh, so is it exposed or just who's got access to it? You need to monitor how it's used because if we start thinking about data not as an IT asset, because that's how it's been thought of for so long, right? Like the files are like the, the servers. They just belong to IT. IT should be the one that's in charge of securing them, right? Well, you don't give IT responsibility for securing access to your bank account, right? That's because the money in a bank account is a business asset. It's not an IT asset. Well, the, the data that's in these files or the files themselves, that's a business asset. So you should start treating it that way. And I guarantee you there's no successful company anyway out there that treats their bank account like they treat their file systems. They, they don't let everybody have access to the bank account with no record of who that money in, belongs to inside the company, let alone what people are doing with it, let alone not monitoring to see when something goes wrong. So if you start to think of the data as a business asset and not an IT asset, and you start to secure it in the same kinds of ways, or you want to secure it in the same kind of ways, then you put some, I'm not, now, I'll, now I'll put on my security hat. I've got a CISSB, I can use these words. You put, you know, you, you put detective controls in place. So you make sure you, 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 you know not only what's sensitive, but you monitor how it's used. So now you can, now you know when something goes wrong. And then you work towards putting better preventive controls in place. There's no reason a valuable business asset should be open to everybody in the company, or if it's out on a, you know, 365 site with a, with a, you know, an anonymous link, everybody in the world, um, you, you made a really good point about keeping bad guys out. Well, now we're moving all our, not all of it, but lots of our data to the cloud. The cloud has no perimeter, right? There's no fence around it. Anybody that's got the links can have access to this data hypothetically. So you, you have even more of an impetus to make sure that you have good preventive controls, good access control lists, where you know that the, the right users are in the right groups and the right groups are on the right ACLs. And now only the right people have access to the right data and everything's monitored. So when something weird starts happening and a user starts accessing sensitive information that they've never accessed before, and you know that because you've been watching how they behave and you've built a profile, all right, so now you can 
now you can take a look and you, you can put your eyeballs in the right place. Or when a service account that normally behaves like a machine starts behaving like a human being or when an admin starts poking around business data or when a user starts behaving like a piece of malware. If you actually watch how data is used, it's not that hard to figure out when stuff is going wrong. Like your, your bank can do it. Your credit card. I get an alert on my credit card if somebody starts buying gas in Montreal, which happened a little while ago. Why can't we do the same thing for data? And it's all it means is you just have to have the right. You just have to, have to put the right kinds of controls in place and start treating data as something valuable, which we haven't for so long. Yeah, and a lot of things you kind of touch on a little bit, but you know, the one thing I've heard, particularly, uh, you mentioned, and you worked for law firms before, and I've done a lot of consulting with them and in their IT groups. So you know, we but what we have to trust our users. Like it's this idea that you know we have to give them carte blanche access to everything because you know they might they might be offended or hurt or there might be that one time a year that somebody needs to access everything. And it just yeah. seems to like give this open access policy internally because we again thought so much about the perimeter. Um, so how do we, you know, culturally try to change that without you know, <laughs> offending people? Quite frankly, I, I think it's it, you. That's a really, really interesting point. And like five years ago, I spent a lot of time talking about what that culture shift looked like and how to facilitate it. These days, what we're finding is that because cyber and security has board level visibility now. Like the days of trying to convince, uh, you know, managing directors or departments that their data needs to be secure are gone. Right when 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 the OPM breach, this is however many millions of you know government employee uh, background checks got leaked. When the details of that came out, and it was because the architectural diagrams to the uh, personnel system, the, the personnel mainframe, were stored on an open SMB share. Right, the like the the days of leaving data open and that being a policy. I think are gone, or if they're not gone, they're on their way out. I, it, w the the issue though, I think is less of we we want everybody to have access, and more of okay, how do we restrict access without breaking things? So we, I, I and I just I, I do a lot of customer events, and I was just out in uh, we did one we did a Veronis event in Brussels, which is really cool. I've never been to Brussels, and we had a. A customer get up and speak. He was from a uh, a pharmaceutical company, and and he said, "Yeah, we 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 invested in Veronis, and now we know who all our data owners are. And data owners are reviewing access on a regular basis. They do their entitlement reviews, and everything's monitored." And I asked him that exact question. It's like, "How did you get past the cultural shift of data being treated like an IT asset rather than a uh, or data being treated like a business asset rather than IT asset?" Because it sounds like, you know, a couple of years ago, you were in a situation where data was open and people just assumed they could get access to whatever they needed. And he said it was less of a, we needed to do this. It was less of trying to convince the business that it needed to happen. And more of once we showed our business users that it wasn't going to take an entire day of their time to complete, then they wanted to do it. Like business users and data owners don't want their data being the the cause of a major breach. They don't want, you know, Equifax in their breach in, in, in like the, in the press release for their breach said it wasn't our core database platforms that were affected. It was just certain files, right? But a data owner doesn't want their certain files to be the reason that there's a major breach, or they don't even want people inside the company seeing their data. This is this is mine, you know. Um, but they don't also don't want to have to fill out like a, like a big paper form. They don't want to have to, you know, redline things and, and send them back in interoffice mail. They don't want to review a list of a thousand people and then be responsible for figuring out which of these human beings and which of these service accounts actually needs access. Like nobody wants to be bothered. 
we have enough busy work. Speaking of work, I've, I've got like five hours of expenses to do. Like that stuff is, we have enough busy work to do. And if we have to um, spend that same, spend a huge amount of time like reviewing access to technical systems, they're just not going to do it. So the trick is showing business users that there's like giving business users an easy way to do it where they're only reviewing what what they need to review and it's done in a logical way and they don't need to review like admin accounts and service accounts and if you don't make it too complicated people will do it but there's a the, the hard thing to do for most companies is going from a state where everything's open to everybody technically to a state where okay now you've got business units aligned with shares that are aligned with single purpose groups and active directory that control read and write access and users can only see the the members of those groups like that's a transformation and that's a technical problem not necessarily a business one well some of this we're certainly seeing now with and uh, you know knock on wood this is the first first episode of the podcast we mentioned mm-hmm. four letter word of gdpr but you know now is it really it is <laughs> i actually probably mentioned it before i just rounded mm-hmm. out mentally uh, but, <laughs> you know, it's a big kind of a big thing and then i get asked about it i'm sure you do quite a bit you know what does this mean mm-hmm. and it's like with increased compliance um or regulatory concerns around data and individuals' data. Now, again, we're talking about the way that this impacts individuals and what the data is about that organization has and the right to be forgotten and access and all that. It's, it's kind of getting at this core cybersecurity issues of, you know, where's the data who has access to it? Um, do we feel now that there's increased, let's say, government oversight on a kind of global level that there's going to be more of attention to this? Or does it, you know not scare people the right way? Um, I think, well, so oh, I'm going to back in. There's a lot of questions there. I think, I think first of all, it's not scaring enough people the right way. Uh, I still talk to a lot of U.S. companies that are taking a wait-and-see approach to GDPR, even though GDPR applies to you if you have EU personal citizen data, whether you've got an office or an employee in the EU or not. So I think there's, there's a little bit too much wait and see. I think everybody assumed that Google, Facebook, and Amazon were going to be the first that were going to get hit by GDPR. And last week kind of proved that out. They're the first ones that are getting headlines about lawsuits. But to take a, a little bit of a step back, I think what the GDPR does and what's so interesting about it is that it, it kind of codifies the idea that personal information is something valuable, like personal data is something valuable. And it's there's kind of a different mindset in Europe versus the US, where in Europe, personal privacy is seen as kind of a basic right. Um, that's been less so in the US, although it's changing. But all the GDPR says is, okay, if, you're, if your privacy, if your personal information and, and the privacy of that information is a fundamental right, that means that if, that if your personal data ends up in digital form, then it should be treated as something really valuable. It should be treated not like I don't know, not like something that can be discarded or, or, or treated with, w- without any care. The GDPR says, there's, there's a lot to the GDPR, and I'm not a GDPR expert, and I'm not a lawyer, but I've spent a lot of time talking about the, the specific requirements of the GDPR on personal data that is on file systems, because that's, that, that's kind of the only thing that I'm really qualified to talk about with the GDPR. And when it comes to that kind of data, the GDPR says a few things. It says, you need to know what you have. So a lot of companies think, all right, my biggest problem is I don't know where I have GDPR data. But going back to my early example, that's not your only problem. Because once you found it, not only do you have to know what you have, you need to uh, only collect it if you have a reason to. You can't just collect everything just because. You, you have to delete it when it's no longer needed. 
you need to make sure that the systems that where it's stored have privacy and security by design. Uh, and part of that is you need to do your best to make sure that only the right people have access to it, right? Going back to you can't leave data open to everybody. You need to have security of processing uh, and and records of processing, meaning you have to record how it's how it's used. You can't just have it and then say, all right, well, we're going to forget about it now and and not worry about what's going on. You have to, you have to record how that data is being used. And if something goes wrong, if there's a breach that you discover, you've got 72 hours to lo- notify the local authorities and you have to provide a forensic record of what happened during that breach. So if you discover a breach, you've got three days to report it and show here's exactly what happened with this breach. Equifax would have been screwed because it was like they discovered the breach in, or it, it breach started in May. They discovered it in June. They reported it in July. Uh, and I'm probably getting the details of that timeline wrong because it's been a little while since I've been talking about Equifax, but it was something like that. Like they discovered it, uh, and then a month later, they, uh, you know, it's, it happened, and a month later they discovered it, and then they reported on it. You can't do that anymore. Once you discover a breach, you've got to report it right away, and you have to have a record of what went on. You have to do regular risk impacts of that data. You have to say, all right, we know who this data belongs to, and regularly they're reviewing why are we collecting this? Why are we using it? Do we still need it? Can we delete it? Who's got access to it? Kind of a regular data impact risk assessment. And only then, after all of that, do you also need to be able to, if somebody asks you to, show them the data you got, that's a data subject access request, and if they ask you to, you have to delete it. That's right to be forgotten. All of that sounds really onerous and complicated, and technically it can be, but really all it's saying is you need to treat the personal data of EU citizens and I'm an EU citizen, I'm a dual citizen of the US and Italy. You have to treat my personal data as something valuable. You can't treat it just like uh, you know, a, a giant junk drawer. You can't just throw it in the junk drawer and not worry about how it's treated or whether it's breached. You have to treat it like something valuable. And when you, when you think about it as kind of a common sense way of thinking about data, I'm gonna go back to your, I think what was your original question is like, is this where the world is going a little bit? I, I think the answer is yes. Uh, because our personal data, you know, everything is digital these days. There's, you know, when it comes to information, everything's digital and, and becoming more so. Our personal data is among the most valuable pieces of information or set of information that any of us have. And sure, some people might treat that kind of cavalierly, but it's, I think it's important for governments and, or, and other organizations to, to, to have some respect for the fact that personal data is extremely valuable not only to us but to them there's a you know that's facebook's business model that's google's business model they exploit the personal data and especially the behavior information of uh, of consumers to make money and that's fine we get a lot of benefit mostly i guess i get a lot of benefit out of google less so out of facebook but that's just my thing you but you know if the companies are going to exploit our personal data to make money then they should the there should be a responsibility for them to treat that personal data with reasonable respect and care like they do with other things that they value. Those companies treat the money in their financial account very, very carefully. They should treat, uh, they also, I bet they treat the inventory in their warehouses very, very carefully. They should be treating the personal information of consumers and their customers and their partners and their employees as very, very valuable information too. And the GDPR is kind of a first and pretty good attempt at kind of codifying how that should happen. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I I think there's still this 
whatever cognitive filter that people have about data, they don't put place enough value on it. Um, and it's a lot, a lot of things when we do security and risk assessments at organizations, you know, one of the first questions I'll try to ask is, you know, how do you keep the lights on? Where's the critical data that keeps the lights on? Mm-hmm. Um, because if it's, it's valuable to you, it's valuable to somebody else. Um, and if it's valuable to you, then you have to take the appropriate you know, steps to safeguard it. And it's interesting, I think, that a lot of people just think it's it's almost so light. There's some intangibility of it that they don't have to worry about it, as they would with like hard currency or something like that. There's, it's it's hard to kind of get their figurative and literal arms around it, so they they kind of don't treat it with the same amount of respect as they would other types of information or, or other things they would monetize. Yeah, you're not wrong at all, and 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 even even further it's because i work in file systems so file systems are treated as kind of the the kind of the dirty stepchild of of other kinds of data too we had a customer get up on stage in london at our connect event and our customers in london and the uk you can imagine have spent a lot of time thinking about gdpr so this was a very mature customer from an operational standpoint they'd spent a lot of time thinking about gdpr and how to how to meet the requirements of all these articles and he told a really interesting story uh, he said you know we 18 months ago or whenever they started, they, they, they knew they were going to have to put better controls around GDPR data. So they sent surveys to all their business owners. Um, and there was a lot of them. We're talking about this is a pretty big size financial company. And they sent surveys out to the business owners asking things like, what personal information do you collect and how do you use it? And where does it, where do you send it? And, you know, is it valuable? Do you know, can you delete it? Like they asked all these questions related to the GDPR to see kind of where they were from a compliance standpoint. And what they discovered was really interesting about file systems. They would survey somebody who would say, yeah, we take customer information in through this system, whatever. It gets collected from the website or from a new account or what have you. And then these documents get scanned into this system. And then the data gets moved over here for processing and then moved over here somewhere else. And then it's deleted over here. Um, And so it looked based on their business owner's perspective that the data was being handled appropriately. But of course, they were Verona's customers, so they scanned the file systems. They scanned the Windows servers, the NAS platforms, looking for this kind of data too. And they used it as, a, as kind of an accountability control to make sure they were that the surveys were telling them everything that they needed to know. And what they discovered was somebody would report that, yeah, the system comes into, comes into the company through system A. It's processed by this person or this team and then moves over to system B. But they would fail to, to, to put on the survey that – in between those two processes, somebody is taking all that information, saving it to a spreadsheet and saving their spread that spreadsheet down to a departmental share, and then somebody else is picking it back up and over and moving it. So GDPR data was ending up on their file system, but they weren't reporting as it being moved to the file system. And it was because, not because they were trying to hide anything, it's because people, the users, thought of their share drive, their I drive or P drive or whatever it was, not as a technical system that needed GDPR controls, but just as kind of like an extension of their laptop. This is just how I work. This isn't, this is email, this is files and emails. This has nothing to do with the technical systems where that, that, that house and process uh, customer data when in fact, of course it was. So this, this customer used used our platform because we can scan, we can find the data and then we monitor how it's used to do two things, to fill in the gaps of all of these business processes that were, that were leveraging GDPR data, um, that had missing pieces where data would end up on file systems. They did that first of all. 
And then the second thing they did was they were finding data in places and being used by people that had never reported it at all. There were business processes that were happening that they knew nothing about that were related to GDPR. People had either ignored the survey or they didn't even know to be surveyed. So they were kind of filling in the gaps in the way the company was leveraging data and leveraging information because they had finally turned on the lights. And that was the crux of this particular customer's story was that once they turned on the lights and started monitoring how data was used, especially in the context of whether it was sensitive or not or related to GDPR, they better understood how their organization worked and how their business worked. And they've started to see real benefits to that in that they've, you know, you can, you, once you understand how something works, you can find out how to make it work better. So this was, uh, this was less a security uh, discussion, although that was a big part of it. And more of, yeah, we, now that we know a lot more about our data, we can make better decisions about how that data is used and by who, and that makes our business run better. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that that people don't realize about the GDPR and other regulations is that there's going to be a cost associated with being compliant, but the companies that are smart about it are realizing this is how we should be treating information anyway. And if we use this as a way to gain a competitive advantage, we're going to be ahead of everywhere else. And because we work and you know, we've got 6,000 customers and we do, we work with even more companies than that, the companies that are being really smart about data and treating it as something really valuable are going to end up being ahead of everywhere else and everyone else. And not just because they're less likely to get fined. Well, there's a lot of, lot of things there too, which is that well, I mean, the primary thing that, I, that I've tried to work with people when we do kind of governance assessments along the same lines is say, look, there's often cost savings that you're not appreciating. And a lot of times we saw that particularly in the, mm-hmm. in the paper world to say, look, you know, how much, how much, what's your, your average iron mountain bill look like? Oh, I don't know. And we'll pull it out. <laughs> how many boxes are you storing? How many how often do you pull those out? Well, I don't know. We just kind of keep them indefinitely. And you say, okay, well, let's get rid of like 90% of it and you can probably save some money. And I, I don't think people appreciate it's, there are uh, some cost savings included into the risk reduction when you start getting into better governance. Absolutely. Uh, going back to the, the risk report from last year, 54% of the data that we look at is stale. And I think that number is soft because we're only looking, uh, you know, we're, we're generally only looking at a portion of data. And when we do a risk assessment, it's often on kind of high value data, which means that it's less likely to be stale. So it's, it's it, you talk about the paper world, it's exactly the same digitally, but it's even easier to, um, to kind of extend the analogy Storage is cheap. Storage is so cheap when it comes to digital data. Um, and that means that even more data is stale. And certainly there's costs that you can that you can avoid in buying new storage or you can reclaim storage. But think about the risk associated with all that stuff. Imagine, well, you don't even have to imagine. How many of us keep every email that we've ever sent? How many companies keep every email? I, I know there, there's, a, there's a big business in retention and disposition for emails because... <laughs> Every every bad business problem these days starts with an email somewhere. Um, so we want to get rid of the stuff that we don't need. Uh, just look at the U.S. political landscape without turning this into a politics podcast, <laughs> right? right? We, we'd love to get rid of all the emails that we don't need anymore. The same thing is true for data. And the, the companies that are getting rid of stuff that they don't need and understanding who it belongs to and, and properly locking it down, they are not just from a security standpoint, they're, they're able to dramatically lower the risk. And that has real business benefits. Sure. Well, Brian, I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Where can people find you? Where, where are you on the, uh, the interwebs and where are you going to be speaking? Uh, uh, you can find me on the interwebs. Best way is through LinkedIn, LinkedIn slash whatever, whatever it is, IN slash Brian Vecchi, com. I've got a little blog there that I'm, I've spun up. Um, I'm on Twitter, Brian the Vecchi. 
uh, as you can see, there's a theme here. Um, I'm also on Instagram, Brian the Vecchi, but my Instagram feed is mostly pictures of farming and puppies since I have a brand new puppy and I like taking pictures of dogs. Um, so if you like pictures of dogs and puppies and less about uh, less of pictures of data security, then I would go to my Instagram feed. Um, I am all over the place. I, I, we're just finishing up our Verona's Connect season where um, if you didn't come to one of our, if you're a Vronus customer and you didn't come to one of our events this year, then you missed me. Uh, but if you know, come next year, we, we tend to do them annually. Uh, I just mentioned I was in Europe. I think we have a couple of more that we might schedule, but I'm not sure if I'll be at those. Um, generally these days I go to the big industry events. So I was at RSA. I'm going to be at Gartner, both Gartner risk and Gartner security later in the year. Um, so if there's a big industry event and Vronus is there, there's a really good chance I'll be speaking at it. Um, but other than that, go to Veronis.com and spin up a risk assessment. And if you'd like to talk to me, I'm sure the, uh, the team that gets in touch with you would be happy to set up a conversation. That's a lot of ways to get in touch with me, but, uh, it is. I, I, <laughs> we'll be sure to put them all in the show notes, including, you know, really honestly what the internet is really for is for animal pictures and pet pictures and kid pictures. So no kidding. Keeping the theme, you know? Yeah. I mean, and come on, who doesn't want to see pictures? I mean, we, we, we have two border collies and who doesn't want to see pictures of border collie puppies? They're, it's, they're the best. They are cute. Yeah. Well, Brian, thanks again, and uh, we look forward to speaking to you soon. I hope so, Doug. Thank you so much for the time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.